this birth. Got my hopes set on heaven because it's hell here on earth. My life was a mess. Calls will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Hey, hey. I was telling Destry, I, I said, when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, and, uh, she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Ceremi. This is season one, episode 10. This is the third part about the trial. This is a continuing story. So if you're just getting started, hit pause, go back and start with episode one. We will wait for you. The trial was incredibly short for a capital murder case. And I have so many things that I want to say about the trial, but I was not there. And all I know is what I've been told and what I can read from the transcript. So before we get into my take on what I have read, I would like you to hear from people that had more firsthand knowledge. The following is some parts of an interview with Destry Jr. and Lisa McKinney, Destry McKinney's ex-wife. And Lisa was at the trial, and Quinn was 15 when all this happened and also has some firsthand experience. We will hear more from Destry Jr., also known as Quinn, in the future, but we'll start with some of his comments, and then we'll go on with Lisa's details about how the trial went. Well, I'm different now. It's so weird. Yeah, it really like threw me, it threw me off track in my whole entire life, for real. Made me feel like I had to be a man right then. And I, I didn't have no control over nothing. Really helpless. Thought I was going to be able to get to see him again. Then him spending all that time in the county jail and then going there like for visits. Well, I went to go visit him when, it was, when I was in my 20s with Lisa. Uh, I don't know, I probably was like 22, maybe. Stuff we had to do to get in there. It, it was the craziest thing in the world. And we we, we couldn't touch him or something. He yeah. was handcuffed to the... um Originally. He, he was like handcuffed still. He had one hand free and one hand cuffed. And I'm like, what type of stuff is... You go, you spend your time in this jail. You just didn't have an understanding. Right, I didn't. Because I'm like, how is he in jail but have to be still in jail when people visit him? Like, this should be free and open. What's the point of this? It was so weird. And it was just like... All the stuff that I grew up on, like that, it made me really hate the system. Even to this day, I got so much more stuff to say about what happened to George Floyd because I'm just not a system person. I think a lot of this stuff is systematic racism, really. I don't know. It, 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 ruined my, it didn't ruin my life, but I, I had to grow up fast. And like we talk about this all the time. You think it would be different if he was out? I'm like, definitely. Definitely, because I have somebody to lean on, Another a man in the family that care about the family. I don't have to, I, you know, I can share my responsibility with this person. It, it'll be his responsibility now, you know what I mean? Where I could just be a kid or a son. I don't have to be all the titles in the family. So it was like, it definitely got a bitter taste for my life. You know, you got to grow up with that. So I don't, I don't make it no excuse of nothing. Oh, if my dad was here, then I would be like this. I don't do that. I, if I did, I feel like it would be true. But I don't. That's that's my story about this. 
That's some powerful pain there. Did you go to the trial? No, I no. didn't. And matter of fact, I didn't even like just, and I was talking to Lisa about this too. Like even with the trial, I didn't know what all that stuff meant. I really didn't. I thought at the, like thinking back on it, I thought I knew what was going on. But like now that I know, I didn't know nothing. I was just completely ignorant. Like I didn't know. I didn't know all this stuff was going on with this trial. And, oh, they found the piece of cloth. Like I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on for real. I'm just thinking like, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? But now I got more understanding about it and uh, being more informed about it. I wish I would have knew the extremity of this whole situation then, but I, I didn't understand for real. We went, I think I went to the pretrial. We got a chance to go in this little room and see him and hug him and stuff. Trying to even remember that. That was crazy because the one prosecutor was like, you're a liar. And like now that I'm hearing all this stuff come out about his case and about how they were trying to, it makes so much sense now. But at the time, that was hard. It kind of made you want to jump over the thing and grab this guy and like do something to him. That's, that's where I'm from. Like, that's where I'm from. You ain't going to, can't just talk to another man. I'm like, why is he screaming at him like that? But now I didn't even understand the severity then. I thought like, okay, okay, this is going to happen and they're going to find him not, or either they're going to say time served or something or he's going to get to come home. I didn't understand that. Nah, they was really driving the points home. Like, you're a liar. You know, we don't know that because this and that. Just the way the prosecutor was talking. And I'm looking at my dad and I'm like, he's the coolest man on earth to me. Like, it's him and Denzel Washington. (laughs) Them two guys right there, you're not going to get much more cool than that. And I always try to be like that. And I didn't see him break a sweat even then. So I'm like, oh, yeah, my dad doing good. He was going to be all right. He is a serious badass. I mean, there is no doubt. That was some years later. After the initial, him initially going to the county, his pretrial, what was that? Three or four years later? Well, the pretrial was not three or four years later. I can't remember exactly when the pretrial was. You remember going though, right? I remember going to, yeah. I I went to the pretrial, the trial, and a hearing for discovery. So, Lisa, you were married to him for some period yeah. of time, but you had already divorced, right, when all this happened? Correct. So tell me a little bit about how long you guys were married and your relationship. Oh, oh wow. We were married in 1987. We met <laughs> on a job. I worked two jobs, and um, one of my jobs was with the city of Dayton for Parks and Recreation. And in the evening or at night, I, would work at a grocery, I worked at a grocery store. And actually, I met Destry there. I was in training one one afternoon, and he happened. They asked him to actually help me in my training. That's how I met him. But I would have never, I would have never thought that we'd end up married. We end up becoming friends because he ended up changing his shift. He worked during the day, and I took the night shift because I worked somewhere else during the day. And we end up becoming friends during the night shift. We would take breaks, and we would just talk. And he tell me about his life. I tell him about my life. One night after after a break and I was out front, I was a cashier and he was actually in training for assistant manager. And that particular night he was there and myself, one cashier, one assistant manager who would help at night and a guard and two guys came in and I guess they had intent on doing something. Well, I wanted a bathroom break and I told Death 
that I needed a break. And he came up to take my place while I would go to the back. So I was going to the back. And when I got to the back of the store, back in the back where the bathroom was, I see a guy. He starts coming towards me. And then he corners me and he puts his hand up against the wall and he corners me. And my reflex is to, to get the hell out of there. So I duck under his arms and I run out of the doors and I run to the front. Meantime, the other guy was up front stealing something in the store and I'm frantic and I go into I'm ready to leave. I'm shaking. I'm crying because I can only think of what this man was going to do to me in the back of this room. How Destin I got to be even closer was that night he calmed me down. He took me in the office and he just he held me and just calmed me down and I left. And then after that, he would call to check on me, basically. And next thing I know, he was asking me out for a date, but it really wasn't a date. It was like our first, our first, I call it our first date was that we went to a car wash. <laughs> he said, what are you doing when you get off work? I said, oh, I'm going to wash my car. He was like, oh, I need my car wash too. So he follows me. Oh my goodness. To the car wash. <laughs> and we're washing our cars and we're talking. And then after that, we, we keep talking and we become friends and <laughs> And then while we were friends, he was he came to my house one day and we were just talking. We were just friends. And I remember he wanted to lean in for a kiss, but he didn't. He asked me first. And I said, nah, I said, I just want to stay friends. I don't want to mess up our friendship. And I remember him telling me he went to his mother and told him, told his mom um, that, man, I think I really messed up with Lisa. I went in for a kiss. I went to ask her for a kiss. And she told me no. And he thought that was the end of it. But the next thing I know, he started asking me out for dates. And I kept telling him to turn it down. Like, no, I don't have a babysitter. And and finally, he was like, you know what? Hey, I'll pay for your babysitter. <laughs> Let me take you out. <laughs> and, and I was like, no. He said, well, let my mom babysit. And I was like, I don't know your mom. You know, finally, I agreed. And we went on our first date. And then after that, he invited me to the family Easter dinner which was always was at, a, at this restaurant. And I went, he said, don't worry about anything. I got you. And I had a, and my little girl and he said, I got y'all. And I said, okay. And after that, it was just, uh, I guess over with, like, I just, he's really a nice guy. And then when I saw him with Quinn, his son, his oldest son and how responsible he was and his mother was, um, she had lupus and his mother was sick. And I remember at the time she just got out of, I think, like a rehab center or whatever. And he was taking care of his mother. He was making sure even though he had a stepfather, he was kind of the man. You know, he went to work. He made sure that his brothers got his younger brothers, made sure they went to school. He bought groceries into the house. You know, he made sure he took care of his mom. And then I would see him with Quinn. And I was like, oh, wow, you worked all night and you got your son all day. And. And then I just thought, hmm, I was like, okay, he's, he's pretty cool. I didn't, I never thought that he was going to be my husband. <laughs> he went off to the military and he called me on the phone and says, will you marry me? He asked you said, over the phone. He asked me over the phone. He <laughs> said, will you marry me? And I said, yeah. He said, wait, <laughs> he said, did you hear what I said? I said, yeah. He said, I asked you, he said, will you marry me for real? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and we got married. We got married in 1987. We had a beautiful wedding. Des was in the military. He stayed in for three and a half years. 
And then we came back to Dayton. Shortly after that, he lost his mom. And after he lost his mom, which was really devastating for him, it just he just kind of got a little lost. He didn't want to lean on me, which I thought he should. And it was just, I mean, it was just really, really difficult. And then anyway, we end up getting a divorce, but we remained friends. I had Dana, I had Danielle, our other daughter, and we were, we were still family. We were still best friends. I cooked dinner. He'd come over for dinner. It was just, we just weren't married. And anything that our family needed, he took care of. That was death. And that was us. And we're still best friends. He's my best friend now. I think I've said that to you before. He is my best friend, my prayer partner, my counselor. He's just he's just my best friend. And I guess some people will not understand that. But that's just the way it is. I understand that. And I don't even know him that well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he, he and I have spent a, a lot of hours on the phone for the past year plus. He's pretty remarkable. So tell me just, I want to talk really about the hidden evidence, but tell me just your experience of the trial because you you went to the trial, right? Or did you not go? No, I went to the trial. I went to the pre-trial and the trial. So you want to know about the trial itself? Yeah, just... Well, briefly, as brief as I can get, the trial, in the, right before the trial, I spoke with the uh, special investigator. He came up to me right before the trial started. He called me Destry's wife, but I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he says, you, he said, you look really nervous. I said, I am. He said, I know you're afraid of what's going to happen. He said, but don't be afraid. He said, because with the evidence, he said, because Alabama does not have a self-defense law, they're going to give him some time and it might be five or 10 years. And he said, he said, and um, he said, but that's way better than life. And when he said that, I was like, okay, I can, I can handle that. I can, I didn't tell it to him, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, I can handle that. You know, five years they might give him five to 10. He'll be out in five years. Okay. So uh, the trial begins and the opening was, was really strange to me. And I guess because I watched a lot of law and order, LA law or whatever, I watched a lot of, you know, that type of TV and it was nothing like I saw on TV. His attorneys go out to, to do their open statements. The first attorney goes out and He's given the opening and I'm going to myself. I don't think they can hear him because I can't hear anything he's saying. So I get a little nervous at at that point. I'm like, they're not hearing him. There's no way they can hear him. So trial goes on. They're accusing him of all of he's a criminal. He's a liar. He's a this. He's a that. And I know that he's not anything that they're saying that he is. But I'm looking at the evidence and I'm going by the evidence. There's no way that this jury is going to convict him on capital murder because I'm looking at the evidence that they're presenting. But one part of the evidence was his pants. When they held up the pants, there was a hole in the pants. Where, where was the hole? Like the leg part. And I kept thinking to myself, I was like, did they hold the whole, the whole pair up? I just remembered that there's the, this cutting, like something wasn't there. You know, there's, a piece of material missing or whatever. And I hear them talk about the material or the cutting and all cutting is supposed to be tested. And, but I'm not hearing everything because the, his attorney is really speaking low. The first attorney, because as I said, he had two. 
And then I just kind of think things are going wrong. I look over in the jury box and the juror, one juror is asleep. So I take out a piece of paper and I write the note and I get the guy who I assume was the bailiff and I give the give him the note and ask him to pass it to John Aaron to tell him that the juror is asleep. And in my mind, and, you know, it's like, how is he going to get a fair trial if one of the jurors is actually asleep in the jury box? So nothing is done at that point. I just felt like it was unbalanced, like something just was so off. And in, in my mind, I was like, are they really working for him? Are they really fighting for him? Is this the best that they could do? Because this is nothing like what I've seen or what I thought and what I was told, because they're not presenting this evidence that I'm thinking that is supposed to be there. The other thing is, is right before the trial, they tell me that they're not going to let the young lady testify who Stevelin attempted to kill. And I'm like, what do you mean they're not going to let her testify? They, they say, well, we can't, they're not going to use her testimony because you can't basically talk against the victim. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And then they say that they had another witness, but couldn't find this this other witness. So I'm like, everything was, it just seemed like everything was just going haywire at that point. I don't know what was going on. So the trial goes on, they come back, they come back too quick for me. I don't know, I think it might've been two hours, three hours tops. I don't even know if it reached that point. I remember the attorney saying, well, it, it might, it, it could be good or it, it, it could be bad, but it could be good because they're coming back with, with the conviction or whatever, with the decision. And then they come back and they find him guilty. And they say guilty. And I had took my daughter with me, Dana. And she was the, young, the youngest daughter. And I would not have taken her with me had I not thought. I had my church praying. I was praying. Friends and family were praying. I knew what evidence it was. I knew he did not commit a murder. And I just thought there was no way he's gonna be convicted. So I've got my daughter with me and they say guilty. Life without parole. My daughter screams and she runs out of the courtroom. And I run after her and there's a guard. And he tells her to shut up. Or I'm going to put you in jail with your father. And something just came over me because the reality of where I am hit me right then. And then at that point, I just felt like there wasn't any way that we were going to win this thing. This was just going to be over. But we left and we left and we went to his aunt's house and I was so drained and I fell asleep but when I woke up I had had a dream and it was like God said something is missing this is not over so we get a call to go and get Dessa's personal items we go to the jail to get his personal items and Dess is there and his aunt and uh, myself and Dana, and I don't know, I can't remember if anyone else was there. Chief Rose, I'll not forget her name. Chief Rose comes out and she has this envelope. She's bought all this stuff out and she has this yellow envelope. And she said, I found this all the way in the back. 
And she goes, if I hadn't dug all, all the way back in the back, I wouldn't have found this. So, and Des is sitting there and we open up the envelope and empty it. And what comes out is the square that was missing out of his pants. And it's soaked in blood. And we're like, what the, you know, what the hell? What, how did this get here? This is evidence. This is what they were talking about. You know, this piece of, this piece of evidence that was supposed to be tested. And they are talking about everything is tested. There's, this is it right here. And at that point, um, I remember Chief Rose saying, and it was just a look on her face, like she heard her surprise on her face. She knew when that came out that that was evidence. She knew that somebody in that department had hid that because that wasn't supposed to be in his personal belongings because he's a prisoner. He didn't cut that out. He didn't put it in his personal effects and put it in the, in the, in the, in the envelope. This was done in the prison. You could see this on her face in the jail. In the, this was done in the county jail. Thank you for coming along on this journey through episode 10 of Aggravating Circumstances. This is an ongoing story. If you have anything you would like to share, please reach out at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends, share the episodes, and we will look forward to seeing you next week. As always... Fasten your seatbelts. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be finishing up with music by Destry McKinney. Soldiers holding church and trenches. Forward we go, onward we flow. We stand up on what we know. No act we found on all facts. The word of God, one mind, one track. Man up, when you see that a man down, head up. Watch the world as it go round. Go and live life on the low, low. Straight as the gate and the way is narrow. Well done, my faithful son. Don't you Christ that you won't be one. In the I conquer triumphant. Holy hip hop, keeping on jumping. Something to behold. And so bold, it's like, oh, and I don't want to let go. Hold the clock, and you know that I can't stop. He's my rock and my help from the hilltop. Your sin is the one that he paid for. Your soul is the one that he come for. One Christ, one King, one God. One Lord, one accord, we go hard. Get ready for the trip of a lifetime. Stay ready, ever steady in the Christ line.
soldier. Armor of God and the world can't hold ya. Hold up. He got the universe sold up. So we rise up when Jesus shows up. And I reign with the king of the kingdom. He break no chains, he casts out demons. Be strong in the word that you stand on. Can't sit on, you just don't gotta move on. He sold with the soul worth saving. Come ye all who are heavy laden. Cause he's waiting, arms wide open to give you rest and not keep open. Yes, we your mouth confess. Jesus is Lord, giving life to the lifeless. See this gift, his best to the Jew, Gentile, the good of the heartless. On the clock, and you know that I can't stop. He's my rock and my help from the hilltop. Your sin is the one that he paid for. Your soul is the one that he come for. One Christ, one King, one God. One Lord, one accord, we go hard. Get ready for the trip of a lifetime. Stay ready, ever steady in the Christ time.